Before we begin this week's episode, I have a couple of announcements. The first announcement is that I have created a Patreon account. So if you like the show and would like to donate so that I can keep making the show bigger and better, just go to www.patreon.com backslash true crime truckers podcast. I have four different tiers of donation you can make or donate whatever you can. The donations will go a long way to further the quality of this podcast. Plus your donation will get you exclusive access to things such as merchandise and stickers, as well as bonus content, all of which I hope to have in the future. Also, I have set a goal for my Patreon account. If I can get donations up to $200 a month, then every month at random I will select one of my Patreons, and I will have them record the opening of one episode per month to air at the beginning of the show. And at the end of every episode, I will give a shout out to all my donors. The second announcement is that I would like to ask all of my listeners to do me a huge favor and rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it. I know it seems like a small thing, but it helps the show out tremendously. The more reviews, and the better the reviews are, the more noticeable the show becomes on those platforms. So if you like the show, leave a 5-star review. And if you don't like the show, leave a 5-star review anyway. This podcast deals with true crime. I will be speaking frankly and openly about subjects such as rape, murder, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode, we will head across the pond to the UK, more specifically London, to discuss one of the most brutal serial killers in British history, a man who over the course of six years murdered and dismembered 12 to 15 young men, and engaged in one of the most taboo acts, necrophilia. Tonight, on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you the case of Dennis Nielsen, the Muswell Hill murderer. Dennis Andrew Nilsson was born on November 23, 1945, in Fraserburg, Aberdeenshire, the second of three children born to Elizabeth Duthie White and Olav Mangus Mongsheim, who had adopted the name Nilsson. His father was a Norwegian soldier who had traveled to Scotland in 1940 as part of the Free Norwegian Forces following the Nazi occupation of Norway. After a brief courtship, he married Elizabeth White in May of 1942, and the newlyweds moved into her parents' house. 
The marriage between Nilsson's parents was difficult. Olav Nilsson did not view married life with any seriousness. Being preoccupied with his duties with the Free Norwegian Forces and making little attempt to spend much time with or find a new home for his wife. After the birth of her third child, Nilsson's mother concluded that she had, quote, rushed into marriage without thinking. The couple divorced in 1948. All three of the couple's children, Olav Jr., Dennis, and Sylvia, had been conceived on their father's brief visits to the mother's household. Her parents, Andrew and Lily White, had never approved of their daughter's choice of husband, but were supportive of their daughter following her divorce and considerate of their grandchildren. Nilsson was a quiet yet adventurous child. His earliest childhood memories were family picnics in the Scottish countryside with his mother and siblings of his grandparents' pious lifestyle, which he later described as, quote, cold and dour, and of being taken on long countryside walks carried on the shoulders of his maternal grandfather, whom he was particularly close. Olav Jr. and Sylvia occasionally accompanied Dennis and his grandfather on these walks. Despite only being five years old, Nilsson vividly recalled these walks with his grandfather as being, quote, very long, along the harbor, across the wide stretch of beach, and down the sand dunes, which rise 30 feet behind the beach, and on the Inverlochy. He later described this stage of his childhood as one of contentment, and his grandfather as being his, quote, great hero and protector adding that whenever his grandfather, a fisherman, was at sea, quote, life would be empty until he returned. By 1951, Nilsson's grandfather's health was in decline, but he continued to work. On October 31, 1951, while on fishing trip in the North Sea, Andrew White died of a heart attack at the age of 62. His body was brought ashore and returned to the Nilsson family home prior to the burial. In what Nilsson later described as his most vivid childhood recollection, his mother weeping asked whether or not he wanted to see his grandfather. When he replied that he did, he was taken into a room where his grandfather laid in an open coffin. As he gazed upon the body, his heart beat strongly as his mother told him his grandfather was sleeping. In the years following the death of his grandfather, Nilsson became more quiet and reserved, often standing alone at the harbor watching the herring boats. At home, he seldom participated in family activities and repelled any attempts by adult family members to demonstrate any affection towards him. He grew to resent what he saw as the unfair amount of attention his mother, grandmother, and later stepfather displayed towards his older brother and younger sister. Nilsson envied Olav's popularity. He often talked to or played games with his younger sister, Sylvia, to whom he was closer than any other family member. On one of his solo excursions to the beach at Inverlochy in 1954 or 1955, Nilsson became submerged beneath the water and was almost dragged out to sea. Nilsson initially panicked, flailing his arms and shouting as he grasped for air which wasn't there. He recalled believing that his grandfather was about to arrive and pull him out before experiencing a sense of tranquility. His life was saved by another youngster who dragged him ashore. Shortly after the incident, Nilsson's mother moved out of her mother's home and into a flat with her three children. She later married a builder named Andrew Scott, with whom she had four more children in as many years. Although Nilsson initially resented his stepfather, he gradually came to grudgingly respect him. The family moved to Stricken in 1955. 
At the onset of puberty, Nilsson discovered he was homosexual, which initially confused and shamed him. He kept his sexuality hidden from his family and his new friends, because many of the boys to whom he was attracted to looked like his younger sister, Sylvia. On one occasion, he sexually fondled his sister, believing that his attraction towards boys might be a manifestation of the care he felt for her. He made no efforts to seek sexual contact with any of the peers to whom he was sexually attracted, although he later said that he had been fondled by an older youth and did not find the experience unpleasant. On one occasion, he also caressed and fondled the body of his older brother as he slept. As a result of this, Olav Jr. began to suspect that his brother was homosexual and regularly belittled Dennis in public, referring to him as a, quote, hen, which is Scottish slang for a girl. Nilsson initially believed that his fondling of his sister may have been evidence that he was bisexual. As Nilsson progressed into adolescence, he found life in Strichen increasingly stifling, with limited entertainment, amenities, or career opportunities. He respected his parents' efforts to provide and care for their children, but began to resent the fact that his family was poorer than most of his peers, with his mother and stepfather making no effort to better their lifestyles. Thus, Nilsson seldom invited his friends to the family home. At the age of 14, he joined the Army Cadet Force, viewing the British Army as a potential avenue for escaping his rural origins. Nilsson's scholastic record was above average. He displayed a flair for both history and art, but shunned sports. He finished his schooling in 1961 and briefly worked in a canning factory as he considered what career path he should choose. After three weeks at the factory, Nilsson informed his mother that he intended to join the army, where he intended to train as a chef. Nilsson passed the entrance examinations and received official notification he was to enlist for nine-year service in September of 1961, commencing his training with the Army Catering Corps at St. Omar Barracks in Aldershot. Within weeks, Nilsson began to excel in his Army duties. He later described his three years of training at Aldershot as, quote, the happiest of my life. He relished the travel opportunities afforded to him in training and recalled as a highlight of his regiment taking part in a ceremonial parade attended by both the Queen and Lord Montgomery. While stationed at Aldershot, Nilsson's latent homosexual feelings began to stir, but he kept his sexual orientation well hidden from his colleagues. Nilsson never showered in the company of fellow soldiers for fear of developing an erection in their presence instead opting to bathe alone in the bathroom, which also afforded him the privacy to masturbate without discovery. In mid-1964, Nilsson passed his initial catering exam and was officially assigned to the 1st Battalion, the Royal Fusselers, in Ossenbruck, West Germany, where he served as a private. In this deployment, Nilsson began to increase his intake of alcohol. He described himself and his colleagues as a, quote, hardworking, boozy lot. His colleagues recalled he often drank to excess in order to ease his shyness. On one occasion, Nelson and a German youth drank themselves into a stupor. When Nelson awoke, he found himself on the floor in the German youth's flat. No sexual activity had occurred, but this incident fueled Nilsson's fantasies, which he began to develop sexual fantasies, which initially involved his sexual partner, invariably a young slender male, being completely passive. 
these fantasies gradually evolved into his partner being unconscious or dead. On several occasions, Nilsson also made tentative efforts to have his own prone body sexually interfered with by one of his colleagues. In these instances, whenever he and his colleagues drank to excess, he pretended he was inebriated in the hope of one of his colleagues making a sexual use of his supposedly unconscious body. After two years' deployment, Nilsson returned to Aldershot, where he passed his official catering exam before being deployed to serve as a cook for the British Army in Norway. In 1967, he was deployed to Aden, South Yemen, where he again served as a cook at the Al-Mansura prison. This posting was more dangerous than his previous postings in West Germany or Norway, and Nilsson later recalled his regiment losing several men, often in ambushes en route to army barracks. Nielsen was kidnapped by an Arab taxi driver, who beat him unconscious and placed him in the trunk of his car. Upon being dragged out of the trunk of the taxi, Nielsen grabbed a jack handle and knocked the taxi driver to the floor before beating him unconscious. He then locked the man in the trunk of the taxi. Unlike his previous postings at Aldershot and Ossenbrook, while stationed in Aden, Nielsen had his own room. This afforded him the privacy to masturbate without discovery. His developed fantasies of sex with an unresistant or deceased partner unfulfilled, Nilsson compensated by imagining sexual encounters with an unconscious body masturbated as he looked at his own prone, nude body in a mirror. On one occasion, Nilsson discovered that by using a freestanding mirror, he could create an effect whereby, if positioning the mirror so his head was out of view, he could visualize himself engaged in a sexual act with another man. To Nilsson, the ruse created an ideal circumstance in which he could visually split his personality. In these masturbatory fantasies, Nilsson alternately envisioned himself as being both the domineering and the passive partner. These fantasies gradually evolved to incorporate his own near-death experience with the Arab taxi driver, the dead bodies he had seen in Aden, and imagery with a 19th century oil painting entitled The Raft of the Medusa, which depicts an old man holding the limp, nude body of a dead youth as he sits aside the dismembered body of another young male. In his most vividly recalled fantasy, a slender, attractive, young blonde soldier who had been recently killed in battle is dominated by a faceless, dirty, gray-haired old man who washed this body before engaging in intercourse with the Spread Eagle corpse. When Nielsen completed his deployment in Aden and returned to Britain and was assigned to serve with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders at Seton Barracks in Plymouth, Throughout his service with this regiment, Nielsen was required to cook for 30 soldiers and two officers on a daily basis. He served at these barracks for one year before being transferred with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders to Cyprus in 1969. Months later, the regiment was transferred to Berlin, where, the same year, he had his first sexual experience with a female, a prostitute whose services he solicited. He bragged of this sexual encounter to his colleagues, but later stated he found intercourse with the female both, quote, overrated and depressing. 
Following a brief period with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders in Inverness, Nilsson was selected to cook for the Queen's Royal Guard. Before in January of 1971, he was reassigned to serve as a cook for a different regiment in the Shetland Islands, where he ended his 11-year military career at the rank of corporal in October of 1972. Between October and December of 1972, Nilsson lived with his family as he considered his next career move. On more than one occasion in the three months Nilsson lived in Stricken, his mother voiced her opinion as to her being more concerned with Nilsson's lack of a female companionship than the career path he should opt to take, and of her desire to see him marry and start a family. On one occasion, Nilsson joined his older brother Olav, and his sister-in-law and another couple to watch a documentary about male homosexuality. All present viewed the topic with derision, except Dennis, who ardently spoke in defense of gay rights. A fight ensued, after which Olav informed his mother that Dennis was a homosexual. Nielsen never spoke to his older brother again, and maintained only sporadic written contact with his mother, stepfather, and younger siblings he decided to join the Metropolitan Police and moved to London in December to begin training course. In April of 1973, Nilsson completed his training and was posted in Wilsden Green as a junior constable. Nilsson performed several arrests but never had to physically subdue a member of the public. Nilsson enjoyed the work but missed the comradeship of the army. He began to drink alone in the evenings. In mid-1973, Nilsson began frequenting gay pubs and engaged in several casual liaisons with men. Nielsen viewed these encounters as, quote, soul-destroying and a, quote, vain search for inner peace as he sought a lasting relationship. In August, following a failed relationship, Nilsson came to the conclusion that his personal lifestyle was at odds with his personal life. His father died the same month, leaving each of his children 1,000 pounds. In December, Nilsson resigned from the police. Between December 1973 and May 1974, Nilsson worked as a security guard. The work was intermittent, and he was resolved to find more stable, secure employment. He found work as a civil servant in May 1974. Nilsson was initially posted to a job center in Denmark Street, where his primary role was to find employment for unskilled laborers. At his workplace, Nilsson was known to be a quiet, conscientious employee who was active in the trade union movement. His attendance record was mediocre, although he frequently volunteered to work overtime. In 1979, Nilsson was appointed acting executive officer, he was officially promoted to the position of executive officer with additional supervisory responsibilities in June of 1982 and transferred to another job center in Kentish Town, continuing this job until his arrest. In November of 1975, Nilsson encountered a 20-year-old named David Galichin. 
being threatened outside a pub by two other men. Nelson intervened in the altercation and took the youth to his room at 80 Tingenmouth Road in the Cricklewood district of London. The two men spent the evening drinking and talking. Nilsson learned that Galichin had recently moved to London from Weston Supermar, was homosexual, unemployed, and resided in a hostel. The following morning, both men agreed to live together in a larger residence, and Nielsen, using part of the inheritance bequeathed to him by his father, immediately resolved to find a larger property. Several days later, the pair viewed a vacant ground floor flat at 195 Melrose Avenue, also located in Cricklewood. They decided to move into this property. Prior to moving into the residence, Nilsson negotiated a deal with the landlord whereby he and Galichin had exclusive use of the garden at the rear of the property. The flat was supposed to be furnished, but upon moving in, Nilsson and Galichin found it to be largely threadbare. Over the following months, Nilsson and Galichin redecorated and furnished the entire flat. Much of the work was performed by Galichin, as Nielsen, having discovered Galichin's lack of employment ambitions, began to view himself as the breadwinner in their relationship. Nielsen later recollected that he was sexually attracted to Galichin, but the pair seldom had intercourse. Initially, Nielsen experienced domestic contentment with Galichin. Within a year of moving into Melrose Avenue, the superficial relationship between the two men began to strain. They slept in separate beds, and both began to bring home casual sexual partners. Galichin insisted Nilsson had never been violent towards him, but he was regularly berated by Nilsson, and by early 1976, the pair began arguing with increasing frequency. Nilsson later stated that following a heated argument in May of 1977, he had demanded Galichin leave the residence. Galichin later informed investigators that he had chosen to end the relationship. Nilsson formed brief relationships with several other young men over the following 18 months. None of these relationships lasted more than a few weeks, and none of the men expressed any intention of living with Nilsson on a permanent basis. By late 1978, Nilsson was living a solitary existence, he had a minimum of three failed relationships in the previous 18 months, and he later confessed to having developed an increasing conviction that he was unfit to live with. Throughout 1978, he devoted an ever-increasing amount of his time and effort to his work, and most evenings he spent consuming spirits and or lager as he listened to music. Between 1978 and 1983, Nilsson is known to have killed a minimum of 12 men and boys and to have attempted to kill seven others. He initially confessed in 1983 to having killed 15 victims. The majority of Nilsson's victims were homeless or homosexual men. Others were heterosexual people he typically met in bars or on public transport or, on one occasion, outside of his own home. All of Nilsson's murders were committed inside the North London addresses where he alternately resided in the years he was known to have killed. 
His victims were lured to these addresses through guile, typically the offer of alcohol and or shelter. Inside Nilsson's homes, the victims were usually given food and alcohol, and then strangled, usually with a ligature, either till dead or until they had become unconscious. If the victim had been strangled into unconsciousness, Nilsson then drowned him in the bathtub, his sink, or a bucket of water, before observing a ritual which he bathed, clothed, and retained the bodies inside his residence for several weeks, or occasionally months, before he dismembered them. Each victim killed between 1978 and 1981 at his Cricklewood residence was disposed of via burning upon a bonfire prior to their dissection. Nielsen removed their internal organs, which he disposed of either beside a fence, behind his flat, or close to Gladstone Park. The victims killed in 1982 and 83 at his Muswell Hill residence were retained at his flat, with their flesh and smaller bones flushed down the lavatory. Nielsen admitted to engaging in masturbation as he viewed the nude bodies of several victims and to having engaged in sexual acts with six of his victims' bodies, but was adamant he had never penetrated any of his victims. Nielsen killed his first victim, 14-year-old Stephen Holmes, on December 30, 1978. Holmes encountered Nielsen at the Cricklewood Arms Pub, where Holmes had unsuccessfully attempted to purchase alcohol. According to Nielsen, he had been drinking heavily, alone, on the day he met Holmes, before deciding in the evening that he must, quote, at all costs, leave his flat and seek company. He invited the youth to his house to drink alcohol with him, believing him to be approximately 17 years old. At Nielsen's home, both Nielsen and Holmes drank heavily before they fell asleep. The following morning, Nielsen awoke to find Holmes asleep in his bed. In his subsequent written confessions, Nielsen stated that he was, quote, afraid to wake him in case he left me. After caressing the sleeping youth, Nielsen decided Holmes was to, quote, stay with me over the new year, whether he wanted to or not. Reaching for a tie, Nielsen straddled Holmes as he strangled him into unconsciousness, before drowning the youth in a bucket filled with water. Nielsen twice masturbated over the body, before stowing the youth's corpse beneath his floorboards. Holmes's bound corpse remained beneath the floorboards for almost eight months, before Nielsen built a bonfire in the garden behind his flat and burned it on August 11, 1979. Nielsen recalled of this first murder, Quote, I eased him into his new bed beneath the floorboards. A week later, I wondered whether his body had changed at all or had started to decompose. I disinterred him and pulled the dirt-stained youth up onto the floor. His skin was very dirty. I stripped myself naked and carried him into the bathroom and washed the body. There was practically no discoloration and his skin was pale white. His limbs were more relaxed than when I had put him down there, unquote. Reflecting on his killing spree in 1983, Nilsson stated that having killed Holmes, quote, I caused dreams which caused death. This is my crime, unquote. Adding that he had, quote, started down the avenue of death and possession of a new kind of flatmate, unquote. On October 11, 1979, Nilsson attempted to murder a student from Hong Kong named Andrew Ho, whom he had met at St. Martin's Lane pub and had lured to his flat on the promise of sex. Nielsen attempted to strangle Ho, who managed to flee from his flat and reported the incident to police. 
Nielsen was questioned in relation to the incident, but Ho decided not to press charges. Two months after the attempted murder of Ho, on December 3, 1979, Nielsen encountered a 23-year-old Canadian student named Kenneth Ockerden, who had been on a tour of England visiting relatives. Nielsen encountered Ockerden as they both drank in a West End pub. Upon learning the youth was a tourist, Nielsen offered to show Ockerden several London landmarks, an offer which Ockerden accepted. Nielsen then invited the youth to his house and a promise of a meal and further drinks. The pair stopped at a liquor store en route to Nielsen's Melrose Avenue residence and purchased whiskey, rum, and beer, with Ockerden insisting on sharing the bill. Nielsen was adamant he could not recall the precise moment he strangled Ockerden, but recalled that he strangled the youth with the cord of his headphones as Ockerden listened to the music. He also recalled dragging the youth across his floor with the wire wrapped around his neck as he strangled him before pouring himself half a glass of rum and continuing to listen to the music upon the headphones which he had strangled Ockerden. The following day, Nielsen purchased a Polaroid camera and photographed Akadin's body in various suggestive positions. Then he laid Akadin's corpse spread eagle above his bed as he watched television for several hours before wrapping the body in plastic bags and stowing the corpse beneath the floorboards. On approximately four occasions over the following fortnight, Nielsen disinterred Akadin's body from beneath his floorboards and seated the body upon his armchair alongside himself as he watched television and drank alcohol. Nielsen killed his third victim, 16-year-old Martin Duffy, on May 17, 1980. Duffy was a catering student from Birkenhead who had hitched to London without his parents' knowledge on May 13th after being questioned by the British Transport Police for evading his train fare. For four days, Duffy had slept rough near Uston Railway Station before Nielsen encountered the youth as he returned from a union conference in Southport. Duffy, Nielsen recollected, was both exhausted and hungry and happily accepted Nielsen's offer of a meal and a bed for the evening. After the youth had fallen asleep in Nielsen's bed, Nielsen fashioned a ligature around his neck then simultaneously sat on Duffy's chest and tightened the ligature with a great force. Nielsen held this grip until Duffy became unconscious. Then he dragged the youth into the kitchen and drowned him in the sink before bathing with the body, which he recollected as being, quote, the youngest looking I had ever seen. Duffy's body was first placed upon a kitchen chair, then upon the bed which he had been strangled. The body was repeatedly kissed, complimented, and caressed by Nielsen, both before and after he had masturbated while sitting upon the stomach of the corpse. For two days, the body of Martin Duffy was stowed in the cupboard before Nielsen noted the youth's body had become bloated. Therefore, quote, he went straight under the floorboards. Following Duffy's murder, Nielsen began to kill with increasing frequency. Before the end of 1980, he killed a further five victims and attempted to murder one other. Only one of these victims whom Nielsen murdered, 26-year-old William David Sutherland, has ever been identified. Nielsen's recollection of the unidentified victims are vague, but he graphically recalled how each victim had been murdered and just how long the body had been retained before dissection. One unidentified victim killed in November had moved his legs in a cycling motion as he was strangled. Nielsen is known to have been absent for work between November 11th through the 18th. 
likely due to this particular murder. Another unidentified victim, Nielsen had unsuccessfully attempted to resuscitate, before sinking to his knees and sobbing, and then standing to expressly spit at his own image as he looked at himself in the mirror. On another occasion, he had lain in bed alongside the body of an unidentified victim as he listened to the classical theme, Fanfare for the Common Man, before bursting into tears. Inevitably, the accumulated bodies beneath his floorboards attracted insects and created a foul odor, particularly through the summer months. On occasion, when Nielsen disinterred victims from beneath the floorboards, he noted that the bodies were covered with pupae and infested with maggots. Some victims' heads had maggots crawling out of the eye sockets and mouths. Nielsen placed deodorants beneath the floorboards and sprayed insecticide about the flat twice daily, but the odor of decay and the presence of flies remained. In late 1980, Nielsen removed and dissected the bodies of each victim killed since December 1979 and burned them upon a communal bonfire he had constructed on waste ground behind his flat. To disguise the smell of burning flesh, of the six dissected bodies placed upon this pyre, Nielsen crowned the bonfire with an old car tire. Three neighborhood children stood to watch this particular bonfire, and Nielsen later wrote in his memoirs that he felt it would have seemed, quote, in order if he had seen these three children, quote, dancing around a mass funeral pyre. When the bonfire had been reduced to ashes and cinder, Nielsen used a rake to search the debris for any recognizable bones. Noting a skull was still intact, he smashed it to pieces with his rake. On or about January 4, 1981, Nielsen encountered an unidentified man whom he described for investigators as, quote, 18-year-old blue-eyed young Scott, unquote, at the Golden Lion Pub in Soho. He was lured to Melrose Avenue upon the promise of partaking in a drinking contest. After Nilsson and this victim had consumed several beverages, Nilsson strangled him with a tie and subsequently placed the body beneath the floorboards. Nilsson is known to have informed his employer that he was ill and unable to attend work on January 12th in order that he could dissect both victims and another unidentified victim he had killed approximately one month earlier. By April, Nielsen had killed two further unidentified victims, one whom he described as an English skinhead whom he had met in Leicester Square, 
The other he described as a, quote, Belfast boy. A man in his early 20s, approximately 5 foot 9 inches in height, who originated from Belfast. In relation to the first of these three unidentified victims, Nilsson later casually reflected, quote, end of the day, end of the drink, end of the person, floorboards back, carpet replaced, and back to work at Denmark Street, unquote. The final victim to be murdered at Melrose Avenue was a 23-year-old named Malcolm Barlow, whom Nilsson discovered slumped against a wall outside his home. On September 17, 1981, when Nielsen inquired as to Barlow's welfare, he was informed the medication Barlow was prescribed for his epilepsy had caused his legs to weaken. Nielsen informed Barlow he should be in a hospital and, supporting him, walked the youth into his residence before phoning an ambulance. The following day, Barlow was released from hospital and returned to Nielsen's home, apparently to thank him. He was invited into Nielsen's residence and, after eating a meal, began drinking rum and coke before falling asleep on Nielsen's sofa. Nielsen manually strangled Barlow as he slept before stowing the body beneath his kitchen sink the following morning. In mid-1981, Nielsen's landlord decided to renovate 195 Melrose Avenue and asked Nielsen to vacate the property. Nielsen was initially resistant to the proposal, but accepted an offer of £1,000 from his landlord to vacate his Melrose Avenue address in order that it could properly be renovated. He moved to an attic flat at 23D Cranley Gardens in the Muswell Hill District of North London on October 5, 1981. The day before he vacated the property, Nielsen burned the dissected bodies of the last five victims he had killed at this address upon a third and final bonfire he constructed in the garden behind his flat. Again, Nielsen ensured the bonfire was crowned with an old car tire as to disguise the smell of burning flesh. Nielsen had already dissected the bodies of four of these victims in January and August and only needed to complete the dissection of Barlow for this third bonfire. I will return in two weeks with the conclusion of the case of Dennis Nelson. In the episode, we will discuss his murders at Cranley Gardens, also the further depravities he inflicted upon his victims' corpses. We will go over his arrest and trial, and eventual conviction. We will discuss his time in prison, as well as go over his death in 2018. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. Also, visit my webpage at www.ageofradio.org backslash truecrimetrucker backslash. You can also follow me on Instagram at michael.prit81. So until then, as always, stay safe. <laughs>